Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is January 18th, 2023. And I'm joined today, as usual, by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and by our special guest, Roberto Salinas. And we're going to be talking today about democracy and politics in Latin America. And Dr. Matthews, it's not like there's nothing to talk about, is there? We have what sounds like a parallel in Brazil to the January 6th Mm -hmm. demonstrations Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Uh, We have... um, the pendulum constantly swinging back and forth between, it seems like, an occasional right-wing government and then left-wing governments in Latin American countries. And, of course, we have the issue at our border with Mexico. So there's lots for us to chat about. And so, Roberto, we're delighted to have you in our studio with us. It's wonderful to have a subject matter expert who knows what's going on on the ground and can give us the give us the facts straight from the ground. And, you know, uh, Roberto, Tom and I have been talking about this for a while. Wayne Stoltenberg, one of our uh, our IPI board chairman, we had a piece in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram here uh, a couple of weeks ago identifying the the potential problem for oil and gas exploration and production in Latin America because so many of the Latin American countries are turning left. And I've just, I've just made a little uh, quick list here. Of course, Cuba's been that way for a while, Venezuela, but you've got Ar- Argentina has had those struggles. Um, Nicaragua, uh, Colombia just recently elected its first leftist president. Uh, Mexico has turned left from where it was. I think Peru, Brazil uh, electing Lulu. Uh, Chile, I think, and, and Bolivia, and there's prob- there may be a few more. And it just looks like so many of the Latin American countries are turning left, and that that really creates a problem for us, both for people who can't make a living in those countries and want to move north to the United States, uh, just their economies. What do you think about what's happening there? Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you, Marilyn, and thank you, Tom. It's great uh, to, to be able to share these thoughts with you. Those Those are all complex questions. I don't think we can easily categorize what's occurring in Latin America as simply a swing of the pendulum from right to left. Uh, Brazil itself, during Jair Bolsonaro, he was supposedly a right-wing government, but he was a highly illiberal populist government as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even Nicaragua, or even Mexico, uh, um, despite all my misgivings and reservations I have with the Lopez Obrador administrations, there are parts of him that would be much more identifiable with old-style fascism mm-hmm. and Mussolini, and therefore right-wing, rather than the sort of Hugo Chavez type of socialist Bolivarian revolution in, 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 in Venezuela. But there's definitely been a tide, and it's been one for the worst, I think, for, for the region after the enthusiasm that the late 80s and early 90s brought with the emerging market darlings and mm-hmm and with free trade and with privatizations and deregulation and entrepreneurship and a whole and the investment boom that even a place like Argentina today Argentina is known for its hyperinflation and mm-hmm. people forget that 20 years ago with its currency board um which is a very disciplined monetary system it's one that basically ties the hands of central bankers and they can't do all the mess that they've been doing nowadays and then had 1% inflation per annum so you, so we know from recent history that Argentina can do it, that Brazil can do it. Colombia has been has been uh, um, has been an incredible story. That after the image of it being the country of Pablo Escobar and the drug cartels and whatnot, something we're suffering in Mexico now, 
But all of a sudden it opens up to trade and they develop these amazing ports, world-class ports. And, and all of a sudden their standards of living rise. But here comes an, ex, an ex-guerrilla uh, um, military um, a mercenary, really, Gustavo Petro, who with a very populist, again, highly liberal, highly populist, highly autocratic narrative, was able to convince a public that is fed up with the status quo. I don't think, I don't think it's been a tide that is inclined towards the ideology of the left, so to speak, as it's been, you're fed up with the corruption, you're fed up with the status quo, you're fed up with the, with the uh, uh, crony capitalist arrangements, and I'm going to go vote for something else. Hey, I'm something else. I'm Gustavo Petro, or this clown, uh, um, Pedro Castillo. His first order of business in Peru, uh, literally a clown. He's, he's the president that wore this, this silly hat uh, going, going about everywhere trying to identify with the people. He's, he was a leader of a syndicate. He was a, a true arms pistol revolutionary. And once he becomes president, and he won by the skin of his teeth, his first order of business is to order the construction of a heliport in his mother-in-law's house. Of course he was going to go to jail, for goodness sakes. And now he's in jail, and now there's turmoil, and people are counteracting. We're working uh, in the project I direct for Atlas Network, <clears throat> uh, the Center for Latin America. We're working with a lot of people in Peru to try to, to, try to build the narratives to counteract, from a popular point of view, that those changing tides. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a, it's it, like everything else. It's, it's very complex. What's, what's occurred in Latin America, but it really presents a, an enormous challenge for the freedom movement in general. So Roberto, you mentioned the project you're working on with Atlas and it, it occurs to me that we haven't really told our listeners who you are <laughs> other than your name. So you do some work in Mexico with Atlas and throughout South America. So give us a quick sort of 30 or 45 second sort of bio about what you do. I live in Mexico City, but I direct uh, the Center for Latin America for Atlas Network, okay. which is a Latin America-specific project that helps to aim um, a universe of approximately 130 think tanks and civil organizations throughout the region, basically to, to, um, uh, to support the freedom movement, the ideas of liberty throughout the region in Chile and in Argentina and Brazil and Bolivia, Paraguay and so on and so forth, Central America. And, and Mexico included. And, uh, and I have in my, uh, our, our team is composed of Gonzalo Schwartz, lives in D.C. He's from Uruguay. We need to talk about Uruguay a little later on. Uh, Antonella Martínez, fantastic uh, uh, commentator and an influencer, uh, Argentinian woman. And, and Axel Kaiser, who's become, who's become an amazing influencer uh, and is sort of like the Latin America's version of Henry Hazlitt with his economics oh, in one lesson. Very good. So, so we do hard work, and, and uh, uh, these are challenging times for the project as it is for the region. Well, we're, we're big fans of Atlas. Atlas is well-known within freedom and liberty-loving circles in the United States, and we're big fans of Atlas here at IPI. And so why don't you, why don't you start uh, with uh, whatever country that you think is the one we ought to start with, and then we'll just go through a list of several countries where there's important things going on. Well, we mentioned a few of the countries mm-hmm. um, in, in our previous remarks and what's happened to Argentina and Mexico and how they're not easily uh, categorized. But my colleague at Atlas, Tom Palmer, says one thing they have in common is uh, the steep rise of illiberal populism. Mm-hmm. So uh, rather than going into philosophical diagnosis of that, it's basically a bunch of autocrats that have seized the day during COVID. It was a perfect time to seize that authoritarian. Do you think COVID was sort of ignited some of this uh, shift? What it, no, it didn't ignite it, but it accelerated. Okay. Shift. So the, the seeds were there and the dissatisfaction with the status quo was there. 
López Obrador in Mexico won because people were fed up with with uh, Enrique Peña Nieto and with the with the the impunity and the the outright corruption. That doesn't mean that López Obrador hasn't been corrupt. He's even been more so, right? Uh, 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 and his son going off to Aspen in private jets, all on taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, um, that uh, he was able to sell the idea that I'm different from what's reigned in, in the what he calls the long neoliberal nightmare of, of Mexico, uh, whatever whatever that means. But that's a weasel word that's been going throughout Latin America. Neoliberal. Now, one, is neo, the, neoliberal. Okay, okay. It, it's, it's almost synonymous with Lord Voldemort. Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's a weasel word. It's, it's, there's no debate. You yeah. automatically, that's it. You yeah. close the debate. And, and so it's basically name calling instead of engaging in civilized conversation and, and argument. Now, one, one country uh, among others that, uh, that has risen as a, as a, uh, as a shining uh, city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan would have said, is Uruguay. Mm-hmm. Uruguay, uh, after Chile was the darling, and all we'll talk about Chile in a bit. Uh, Chile was the darling of, of 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 Latin America and the great success story, and then the the student revolt there, and then this this president that, by the way, has Gabriel Boric. He has lower than twenty seven percent approval right now because some of the some of the tremendous silliness that he's tried to do and 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 to deconstruct something that really has worked well, and they were able to they were able to um, quadruple the the income per capita in Chile in one generation that's a remarkable success story and, and, and of course for those of us in the US who are who are who are liberty lovers you know for us Chile the story there has always been the system of private pensions and private retirement accounts, which right? Is only, which, is, which is only one of many wonderful stories. Their mineral law, their labor law, their rule of law, hmm. their respect for property rights. They're the country that mo- uh, Chile and Uruguay. But now Uruguay with Luis Lacalle Pol, uh, that's one that we need to turn to and begin to examine because here's this tiny little country. They're known for their fantastic soccer players, and they're known for Punta del Este, where you go and sail during February and March when it's their summer over there and for their big conventions and whatnot. But that's where everybody from Argentina is going there, is relocating there. Uh-huh. The CEO of Mercado Libre, which is like the Amazon of, of, of South America, mm-hmm. a, a, an enormous and incredible enterprise, they gave up on Argentina. They had to go to Uruguay. So it's become almost like a Hong Kong Hmm. Uh, well, old Hong Kong, yeah. <laughs> a, a magnet of investment and of, and of opportunity. And you have a president that even in the midst of the, the worst moments of the pandemic, he said, my philosophy is one of responsible freedom. Okay. I'm going to give you freedom to choose, but I ask you to do it responsibly, meaning safe distancing and whatnot, but it was not compulsory. It was not compulsory. And they had their spikes and it was the same, the same story that we live with Sweden we lived or we lived in Florida and we lived in Texas uh, versus other states in the United States that they lived in Uruguay. And Uruguay today has become an excellent example of, of the path forward for Latin America, in my opinion. By the way, that's where we're having our next Latin America Liberty Forum is uh, in, hmm. in, in Uruguay. At Mont- Montevideo? And no, in Punta del Este. Oh, but we're I'm, also doing a program in Montevideo. Because I've always wanted to visit uh, Montevideo. No, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's great, and, and uh, it's, it's a great country. Yeah. So one of the things you're saying is that the, the shift that we're seeing is it, these, are, these can end up being strong men in certain countries, I suspect. Some of them already are. There's a, there's a book called Strongmen that was just published. I forget the author, but... The name I would use is caudillos. That's the term that we use in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Caudillos is like the old style Pancho Villa 
sort of Latin cowboy that mi palabra es la ley. It's my word is the law. And that's it. That's, those are the strongmen in Latin America. And Petro, Pedro Castillo, Amlo, they're all strongmen. Is there a way to eventually get them out of the system? Because once the strongmen get in, they oftentimes change the courts, change the laws, and do other things to make it impossible to ever get rid of them. The horror story of Venezuela is precisely that. Mm -hmm. They were able to change the institutions in a way that they're permanently in power. But it's a racket. It's really, if you really want to talk about the one percenters, it's, it's, it's the Maduros in Nicaragua. It's, it's, it's this uh, um, uh, Daniel Ortega, whose vice president is his wife. What, what, <laughs> I mean, what more rigged can you get than that? And if anybody opposes them, including Catholic priests, they go to jail. We have a friend, a close friend of Atlas, Felix Madariaga, uh, whose wife, Berta Valle, we've tried to help as much as possible. She can't even talk to her husband on their birthday on Christmas with the little girls. And all he did was run for president. That's all he did. Mm. That was his fault. And he's in solitary confinement, which the psychological torture he must be undergoing is absolutely brutal. So that's the common denominator in Mexico right now with all the talk about the Three Amigos Summit and this and that and USMCA and whatnot. And nevertheless, here's a man who basically says that in order to ensure democracy, I need to control it. Mm-hmm. So let's let's deconstruct the independent electoral bodies. And now it's the Ministry of the Interior. You know what that means. That's going back to the frauds, the presidential uh, election frauds and the state election frauds that used to prevail uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So how do you expect this is going to affect the various economies of Latin America? No, it's uh, it's it's not going <laughs> to it's not going to bode well for them. Uh, right now, uh, I think in 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 some cases uh, you're gonna you're gonna have a deep recession. Uh, we we see a rise in inflation, not as much as I would have expected, mm-hmm. except for the case of Venezuela, which is basically a dollarized economy because you can't trade in bolivars. That's an untradeable. That's basically worthless. It's worth less than zero. Okay, that that this is hilarious to me. That if if you if you sufficiently wreck your currency, you end up almost by default pegged to the U.S. dollar. No, no, not almost <laughs> by default. De facto by default. Yeah. In Cuba too. In Cuba, the dollar is the reigning currency. Huh. It's the unit of account. In Mexico, it's still the unit of account, despite Mexico's re- remarkable accomplishments in 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 uh, in slaying the inflation and debt devaluation uh, dragon. Uh, and the moment the inflation rises. This is a non-ideal lot. You're not mm. right or left. You're just a house mother yeah. or, 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 or you're a business owner that's trying to protect his or her patrimony. That's it. So it's not, you can be Maoist in your deepest ideology and you'll still want to protect your, your, <laughs> your purchasing power. And that's something that here in the U.S., of course, the complaint is well, is well taken and well lodged, but 7%, 8% inflation. How about 7 or 8% a week? That's the way these people live. Mm. So what? So you ditch the currency, you begin to trade. Even barter can be more efficient than Mm -hmm. just trading in that worthless currency. Or people, the moment they get paid, immediately they go out and buy something because a refrigerator or a secondhand TV or whatever is probably going to preserve value more that worthless currency. So that's the situation in Venezuela. And in Argentina, too. Okay, that was my next question. Are there other Latin American countries that are having that severe of a currency? Argentina, Bolivia is is beginning to see some of the throes of that inflation. Peru, fortunately, Mexico even has resisted that. Mexico, because it has an independent central bank. And it was a very well 
designed a monetary reform 25 years ago where it doesn't matter if you put a monkey in there or you put whoever, and they have a bunch of incompetent loyalists that Lopez Obrador has put, but the mandate is very clear. You have to preserve the purchasing power of the currency, period. Mm. That's your job. Mm. It's not to cure happiness. It's not to, it's not to engage in climate change. It's the currency. That's it. There's only one mandate. And, that, and the only way to do that is when times are tough, you have to tighten, uh, tighten capital markets, the interest rates, to get inflation down. And so that kind of clarity, I think, it doesn't have a dual mandate, like, the, for instance, the way that you have I, I was the just going to compare it to yeah. the U.S., right? Yeah. I mean, you, you literally have almost like a Friedmanite rule in Mexico with a central bank that, like, we don't have here. You know, yeah. you've got this dual mandate of the currency, but then also unemployment. That, that's correct. Yeah. So, so that creates a lot of tension because, and, 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 hence, and, and hence sometimes the lack of transparency or, or, or the lack of guidance, where's the Fed going? And you're trying to... And you're and you're trying to uh, you're trying to guess where the Fed is going to go, and then things don't go the way the Fed says, and then it becomes a guessing game that creates a lot of needless uncertainty. Right, right. Whereas so, if, if you have a solid rule and a solid mandate, as you say, it almost doesn't matter who's running the central for bank. Con- especially for a country that's had such a monetary mayhem, mm-hmm. as Friedman would have said, or monetary yeah. mess as, as as Mexico. I I remember the days when when inflation was one hundred and eighty percent. 180% inflation per annum means you go to the supermarket and by the time you get to the to pay, it's uh, the prices have gone up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's. So if, if, if this affects the economy and it makes it worse, Tom had mentioned the immigration issue. Uh, we've got, we've had record high immigrants coming across the Southern border. Um, and many of them, when they, when you hear the media talk to them, they're, they're from Venezuela or they're from Nicaragua or other places and Haiti. other places in Latin America. And they are, you know, they're trying to flee a corrupt government and bad working conditions and so forth. It, from an American standpoint, you have to be sympathetic with that. At the same time, we can't process all the people coming in. So what uh, Kamala Harris, our vice president, was supposed to be put in charge of this aspect, been a complete failure. I'm not sure she's done anything. What do we do to address this issue? Because if you, my sense had been that if you had a, a well-functioning economy in Latin America with Mexico and other countries, people typically want to stay if their countries are, are working well, they're able to have jobs, they're able to vote and do other things. How do, you, how do you address this problem? Well, if you had the American dream in the extended sense of all of the Americas, then you probably would not have that problem. You would have a lot of migration, but that migration would depend on supply and demand of labor and mm-hmm. of talent and not fleeing a dictatorship or fleeing an absolute chronic poverty or, or simply escaping. And, and, and a lot of, I know a lot of Latin Americans go to the United States in search of whatever, and then to send the remittances back home because mm-hmm. uh, earning $8 uh, uh, a week versus $8 a day or $8 an hour <laughs> makes an enormous difference, right? And then you send that back home. And that's how many communities actually survive. Sure. It's, through the, it's through the remittances that are sent, uh, which I, I, just on a parenthetical remark, I love these Latin American uh, strongmen. Uh, oh, we're going to use remittances to, to uh, fuel social growth and social spending. But they're my money. Mm-hmm. So it's, they don't even understand what a remittance is. That's the, the ant or the cousin that is now uh, working as a caddy or a taxi driver, an Uber driver, and earning well and sending that money back home. That's right. their private property. It's not the government's property. 
But somehow politicians want to see how they can seize their hands even on that. And unlike earnings where uh, my employer submits forms to the Fed, to the government to know so they know how much money I've made with the remittances. Is there does the government even know how much individuals? No, no, you you, you can tell, although there there are questions about using remittances as a vehicle for money laundering. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about that theme, but it seems to me that the amount of remittances that Mexico is getting now, they're just not equivalent to the amount of families that are receiving it. So Mm -hmm. it leads us to hypothesize that perhaps there are, that there's, that that there's more there. And, and the, and the hypothesis is, well, there's got to be narco money uh, involved. Now, as far as immigration is concerned, the first thing, the first thing we have to point out, it's a, it's a very emotional subject and sometimes emotions both our hearts and our stomachs get in the way of reasoned discourse on, on the matter. And you saw this with the three amigos summit. Mm-hmm. Basically the, the agreement was we're going to do something about it without even telling us what they're going to do. Right. In the case of, in the case of the border between Mexico and the United States, what you have is an enormous flood of migrants. Sometimes they walk all the way. They walk. Oh yeah. Sometimes ben- it's from, months from Venezuela all the way to the border. And their savings, instead of being put channeled into something, they, they hire these coyotes. And sometimes, as you've heard, you know, they, they, they turn out to be asphyxiated in 45 degree mm-hmm. uh, weather crossing, crossing the border. And you have these horrible tragedies of, of uh, families and even children that, that, that are just seeking whatever opportunity. So I think it's a problem that you cannot say, okay, if Nicaragua had prosperity, if Honduras had prosperity, if Haiti had prosperity, even Mexico had greater prosperity, you would stem the, 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 um, the flow of migration. On the other hand, there's also an enormous amount of demand. And that's something that in recent discourse has got to be acknowledged. There are a lot of uh, job opportunities that are not being filled by the local communities themselves. And actually, it's an enormous value added to be bringing in migration from uh, uh, migratory flows from the south of the border as long as that is gainful employment. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, so a lot of people say, well, if it's legal immigration, okay. If it's illegal, then it's not. Okay, let's define what's legal and, and, and what is illegal or what is it that offends the political and social, the political sensibility and the social stability uh, of the region. 40,000 Haitians upon your door asking for asylum. Yeah. Okay. That's a very big problem. On the other hand, if there is, if there is labor demand for a specific task, either in Phoenix, Arizona, or in Nogales, Arizona, or in California and Baja California, there, my approach would be one to try and make it, this, this is my personal opinion, but my approach would be to try and, and, and put a more flexible framework around the labor mobility in, was that labor mobility exists, whether we like it or not? Oh, yeah, it has for years. One we, very distinguished economist, let me finish with this on the migration aspect, uh, uh, Kevin Murphy, who's uh, a protege of Gary Becker. Uh, he studied this in, in, in detail. And at a lecture in Mexico, he said once, you know, if you ever end up building the wall, uh, between Mexico and the United States, I hope it's really thick and really tall because even those who cross over, that's the type of talent that we need in the United States. <laughs> and I can tell you a lot of stories about remarkable entrepreneurship, whether it's whether it's uh, uh, cooks, whether whether it's um, 
golf caddies that have turned that are professional and the, did their entrepreneurs and now own golf courses. Whether it's, there's a famous uh, specialist that operates on people with these called Doctor Q in Los Angeles. He mm-hmm. used to be a tomato picker and now he operates brains with cancer and he's world famous. He's won all kinds of prizes all over the world. Now, don't you think that Mexico would like that talent back home? But no, the labor opportunity and the remuneration is is at the LA hospital, not back home, not back home in Mexico. So that's 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 a that's more value added for the United States than it is for Mexico. We'd rather have them back home. Yeah, I, IPI has long supported a what, what I would call a a robust guest worker program where people could come, maybe they would instead of paying coyotes, maybe they pay either the government exactly. or some private organization. A few thousand dollars, they're allowed to come in, and maybe that's a pass for two years or three years or something. It doesn't make you a citizen necessarily. It doesn't mean your children become citizens, but it means you get, if your children are here, they get schooling and so forth, but you're here to work. You can go back and forth as you need to. Come when that pass uh, uh, terminates after two or three years, you sign up for it again, mm-hmm. and then, then you sort of meet the working demand that you have. Uh, the demand for workers at this end, you help out the other countries as well. And you create a legal process for people to be able to come and cross the. Uh, but right now it has become so polarized in the states that if somebody were to say we want to allow people to come here to work legally, it almost becomes they get charged with where that you're just amnesty. Mm-hmm. And it's not amnesty. It's allowing us. We w- we'd like to set up a program where this works. Well, no, you're just doing amnesty now. Well, no, we're not. But it has become so polarized here. And I'm not sure how we get past that anytime soon because we need a, a functioning system that allows people to come to work and go back when they want to because they're oftentimes doing it anyway. Um, but you need to have that system. And we I, we can't seem to get past the polarization that we have now, the concern is that Democrats just simply want to let everybody in and make them citizens so they can vote for Democrats, whether that's true or not, it's a different issue. Mm. And uh, then you've got the uh, Republicans who've just gotten, who just sort of turned against this. You know, Republicans used to be for immigration and and legal immigration. Now you've sort of separated Democrats because of their tie to unions actually used to be opposed to immigration. And it's flipped now. Do you have any suggestions about what we can do for that? I think part of it would be to recover the spirit of that that great speech given by Ronald Reagan, the shining city on the hill. And uh, whether it have walls all over it, uh, it it will also have doors and remain open to everybody who wants to come in as long as you respect the rules of the game. So, of course, we don't want El Chapo to be coming in unless he's extradited. Now his son has been extradited. Uh, Or you you don't want criminals to be crossing over. I mean, Donald Trump's quip about uh, Mexicans being rapists and drug lords and the most violent people. Well, in Texas alone, if you use that logic, uh, eight out of every 10 crimes committed in Texas are by Texans, Mm -hmm. by Texan board. So that means that you should build a wall around Texas to avoid those Texans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, it, that's not the way you, I, I understand the politics of it. And, and, and it's a powerful narrative that sells in the political marketplace from a, from a practical point of view, that was not a solution. I think the type of versions of the guest worker program would go a much longer way. What to do with the asylum seekers in the face of humanitarian crisis. I think that's one of the biggest challenges facing us today and, and yeah, it's a symbol of the success of the United States. Um, I even think those asylum seekers would add value 
But uh, again, uh, in in the face of the need for reason discourse, you have stomachs and hearts that <laughs> you tend to react with with a, with a great deal of dignity and emotion, and it's something that 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 betrays your sense of uh, uh, your sense of community. Uh, um, except uh, if you live in the border, a lot of these border towns are 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 completely porous anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the backlogs, you go to Nogales. I've been to Nogales a number of times. Nogales, Sonora, and Nogales, Arizona, they feel like it's one town on one on the one side of the border and the other one on the other side with a McDonald's here and a McDonald's there with a taco stand here and a taco stand there with a Walmart here and a Walmart, Walmart there. And you eat or you shop or you do what you do uh, depending on prices, depending on what the price level is. So I'm not sure that answers the question of the asylum seekers, but I, I, I think, I think um, from for the Democrats and for the Republicans, if, if you both sat them down and, Think of something that is constructive, something along the line of guest, uh, a guest worker program, or Alex Norristad at the Cato Institute has developed a really cool idea that he picked up from from uh, from Gary Becker about why don't we create a capital market to finance honest to goodness worker visas? And if you if you're going to receive Medicare and Medicaid, you need to pay pay your fair share, and that fair share means that the visa might be worth eighty, a hundred, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well. From the job, you retain that amount to pay for a loan that is facilitated by a capital market or, or by a bank or even a public-private partnership, the, the so-called North American bank, the, the NAD bank, which in Mexico we call the NADA bank because <laughs> it's never done anything, right? Well, that, that's something that it could do and, and finance those types of visas. Of course, those visas would be contingent on the type of scrutiny you get today with the remarkable bridge in, in San Diego and Tijuana, for instance, where it's all facial recognition and where basically you're giving up the right to privacy to, or, or the, or, or the um, global entry program. Many mm-hmm. Mexicans have, I have global entry, but I had to go through the equivalent of an FBI check. They knew more, more about my life than I did in order to get approved. But of course that means that I can go and come in a much easier way because check he's or she is already uh, uh, one that is pre-approved. I think those types of smart border technologies would go a long way towards solving these um, immigration dilemmas. With the sh- political shift in Latin America that we've been talking about, um, it's you're likely to get a, a lot more asylum seekers, I suspect, yes. as, as people speak out against some of these governments. So forth. How do you turn that around in Latin America? I mean, how do you get back to the point where you're, where you're a thriving Chile? Uh, a th- thriving Venezuela is is there a way to turn this around no, again such a good question but it's it's very difficult I think a lot of it has to do the way that you sell the story and it's the ideas of liberty are not easy to sell as we found out all over the world right um the the Bolivarian socialist that promises utopia tomorrow mm-hmm. that's a much easier sell than hey if you work hard and the rule of law with the right incentives maybe you can get ahead Maybe, maybe, but then again, maybe not. Um, and so, and, and so, the the promise of instant redemption is something that that characterizes a lot of these caudillos. Um, and often, I've I've said in other lectures that they're they're the real they're the real they're like the pigs in Animal Farm, uh, where at the end uh, the pigs uh, once they uh, taken power says all animals are equal, but some yeah. some animals are more equal than others. Yes, yeah, exactly. And you see the way that Maduro lives today with their $30,000 Rolex watch and private planes and Ortega and his wife live in absolute, you know, palatial mansions. I mean, 
Mark Zuckerberg and, and and Warren Buffett would never dare even, you know, to think of those types of riches or Pedro Castillo constructed with taxpayer money. I mean, that's real. That's real impunity. Lopez Obrador, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, he lives in the National Palace. Mm -hmm. He likes to compare that his income is only thus and such a month versus what others get. Yeah, except he hasn't factored in how much rent would cost to live in the <laughs> National Palace, plus all the service and all the guards that he has. He lives in an imperial uh, scenario. So that's why many are thought, this leads us to think that this is really a political, this is a political maneuver, a political racket in order to extract, to extract as much rent as possible, as much resource as possible from society. That's got to have an economic consequence sooner or later. And that economic consequence means a lower standard of living, which leads people to think, well, maybe I should try my luck north of the border. Uh, north of the border, including Canada. Many end up in Canada uh, or wherever, wherever except, except here. Uh, right now we see migratory flows. These same discussions are being had in Latin America today. In other words, people going to Uruguay and all of a sudden Uruguay being filled with requests for, 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 uh, uh, for citizenship or requests for living there, uh, the prices go sky high. You see it in, here in the United States between states, right? Texas that has attracted a lot of investment and, and or Miami and, and Florida and the greater Florida area that has attracted a lot of investment and the way that that's distorted prices in the, in the, in the real estate market. Um, all, of, all, of, all of these distortions could be avoided if we had if we had a better rule of law. So, I mean, the, the, the easy answer to a very, very difficult question is, is I think we need, we need to work very hard on the way we sell the story and sell the narratives. And, and uh, what Brad Lips like, likes to call the, the authentic or genuine sense of what the ideas of liberalism is one that is open, that is diverse, that is inclusive. And we, there's a lot of talk about, oh, I'm in favor of inclusive prosperity. Prosperity by definition has to be inclusive. By definition, so we need, but the inclusive part sounds really good. Um, nevertheless, I think I think that type of approach is is very important in Latin America, so that those that the forgotten men and women, so to speak, in Latin America, feel like they have skin in the game and are being taken into consideration beyond the promises of instant redemption that the Caudillos put forth. So, in the United States, when we have a a somebody, a president who's on the right, we oftentimes shift to a president on the left. And so, you had George W. Bush, then you had uh, Barack Obama before George W. Bush, you had Bill Clinton, then you had uh, Donald Trump after Barack Obama. Now we've got Joe Biden. So we're we're on the left side right now. Uh, but we may very well come up in the next presidential election with somebody who's on the right and change some of these things. Is there hope that some of these countries, that many of these countries in Latin America that have shifted left, Colombia and some of these others, may come up in two or four years, six years, whenever the next presidential election is and say, we tried that, we didn't like it, and we're going to shift back the other direction. Is there, can that happen? And is there hope that that no, will happen? I think it can happen and it has happened. When Mexico finally elected a different president, many people forget that Mexico had the longest ruling uh, party in power mm -hmm. in the 20th century, more than the Communist Party in the USSR. Over 70 years, the PRI was in power. And to us in 2000, when we sent the Fox one, that was like the fall of our Berlin Wall. That was the sense that, oh my goodness, my vote really did count. Mm -hmm. That's the way I felt. It's not before it was irrelevant whether you vote or not because you know who the winner is. And so we have, El Salvador is another uh, country today with Nakim Bukele who's 
put Bitcoin as the as the currency. <laughs> I don't have anything against Bitcoin, but don't put it as a currency for goodness sakes. That's you know that's you want if you want to destroy the stability of the unit of account in a, in 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 a medium sized household or those living in in um, in moderate poverty. I mean, that's the worst thing you can possibly do to them. Oh, well, they're, they're going to get rich. Yeah, but they can also get very poor mm-hmm. and within a matter of minutes, uh, as, mm-hmm. as, as we've seen. Uh, but Bukele, uh, Bukele there has, uh, um, has adopted a very strong man uh, type of strategy in El Salvador. But uh, our colleague Juan Jose Dabub says, look, even lowly El Salvador, it's known for its gangs and its violence. And whatnot, but we were the darlings when Francisco Flores was there, uh, and even uh, 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 former President Bush forty three used to praise El Salvador as the ne- next great emerging market. So Argentina's done it, Mexico's done it, uh, uh, Chile showed us how to do it. Uh, uh, Brazil has gone back and forth. Brazil is an interesting case because because Lula won by such a tiny margin that he does not have the popular mandate to go and do a lot of the things that mm-hmm. would happen in Venezuela. Venezuela to me is, is, is a big conundrum because here are people, 90% of its people live in moderate or extreme poverty. Okay, Moderate and extreme poverty in Venezuela means you have to go out and look for food at the trash bins, right? Whereas the rest live a very, very cozy life because you have a patrimonial arrangement with the government. The government doesn't care as long as it continues to extract and 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 um, and benefit from the from from the spoils of that uh, economic degradation. Uh, all all is well. How come? How come there hasn't been a revolt there? How come there hasn't been a change in the, in a different direction after such after something that has occasioned a humanitarian crisis? I could say the same thing about Cuba or even or even Nicaragua uh, and and many of these countries. But my cautious hope, my cautious hope is that here you have Peru, somebody clown like Castillo, incredibly dangerous clown like Castillo came in and seized power and yet he's been ousted. And Lula was put in jail and he became president again. You know, something's happened in our institutions that lead us to think that people have a lot more. The forgotten men and women are not that forgotten and not as irrelevant as they used to be in the face of these, of these strong men. My prediction is that Colombia, for instance, with Petro, uh, Colombia suffered a 40% evaluation of its currency, Mm -hmm. okay? Which for the U.S., who cares if it devalues or revalues or whatever, but when your unit of account, when your state of mind ties the value of your patrimony to the dollar, that means a 40% drop in what you're worth, right? That, Mm -hmm. That makes a difference. That makes a difference. So I think there should be a political repercussion in Argentina. It's amazing. I mean, it's not like they go back to the right or back to the left. You have strong radical libertarian voices that have emerged that say, Hey, I'm really the alternative. Javier Milei and Ricardo Lopez Murphy, Agustin Echevarne, and many others that, that have said, we've been saying this throughout all the years. What Argentina needs is basically a, what we call in Spanish, borrón y cuenta nueva. We have to reboot and restart again. Argentina was the third most prosperous nation in the first half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason. They just won the World Cup. There's no reason why they couldn't win the Economic World Cup. They have everything, human capital, resources. They, it's a very large country. 
um, uh, they they have mineral reserves, gas reserves. They have everything going to become one of the great success stories of uh, of, of the global economy. And yet, it's had these politicians that, uh, like Christina Kirchner, at least the law over there condemned her for corruption. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't you can't impeach her because of the politics there. As long as you're president, you can't be tried. Uh, she's vice president, but she's the de facto president. But uh, but 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 at least that came. So I'm I'm, I'm my 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 um my general conclusion is that I think that there is cautious hope that we can contain the the rising tide of strongmen in 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 Latin America of caudillos in Latin America and that and that people uh, do cherish and learn to cherish the value of freedom to choose and of the of the ideas of liberty. And these are the these are not the uh, Chicago trained PhDs. Uh, these are the regular men and women that go out and work hard every single day. Now you're with the Atlas Foundation, so take just a minute as we as we wrap up here to talk a bit about the found, the Atlas Foundation because it's not just Latin America. You're around the world, and so touch base and and how people could get in touch with you if they want to find out of more. Course. Of course, it's actually Atlas Network. It used to be Atlas Economic Research Foundation. Yes, it changed its name a few years ago to Atlas Network, and with a good reason. Because really what Atlas is, it's not a think tank. It's sort of a holding uh, company of think tanks that helps think tanks around the world, civil society organizations and individuals. And it prides itself, its great value is networking. So I can go to Indonesia and I know I'm going to be received in welcome arms by my friends at the Avocada Institute. They just won the temple, the annual Templeton Prize. And uh, Atlas prides itself by emphasizing three principles. What they like to call coach, compete, and celebrate. So they help think tanks from the inception. I'll show you how to set up the think tank. I'll train you on how governance is supposed to take place and and what your board is supposed to look like, your fundraising strategies, and what programs you should should focus on. Media trainings, you know, they'll go out and hire experts in order to help you with media trainings. Then they, then, then they celebrate, they compete, they compete for grants. So we have a, we have a small pie of grants, but that's shared uh, uh, by, by, by a grant decision-making uh, committee that, uh, that has been perfected throughout the years. Uh, and it's a very hard work and extensive review that uh, my colleagues uh, make at institution, uh, Institute Relations. And that's over 530 organizations throughout mm. the world. That, that's really a remarkable, and, and many in the United States. Uh, and now, now the, the, the way that the, the, the way the, the last four years, these centers have developed, the Latin America Center, but there's also the Europe Center and the North America Center, and there's also the, uh, um, uh, the Asia Center uh, and the Africa Center. And the idea there is to bring leaders of the movement that can help Atlas engage and exchange at a deeper level between the partners. And so it's, it's not decentralization, right? We mm-hmm. depend a lot on, uh, on, on the mothership and the headquarters, but it is, Hey, I, I, I know the folks and I more or less know what they want. And so I feed that information back to them to the third component, which is celebrate. And these are the conferences and these are the prizes. And these are the, the, we have a really cool thing called the think tank shark tank where at each regional <laughs> forum, you know, these, these think tanks come in with the, with the coolest pitch, mm-hmm. you have a jury and the jury selects the first prize gets so much and the second prize gets thus and such. And the third prize gets uh, a, a certain amount. 
Uh, all of this culminates in New York where everybody's invited on an annual basis for what has turned out to be probably the most important annual event of the freedom movement in the entire world, hmm. the Liberty Forum and Freedom Dinner. And at the Freedom Dinner, uh, we announce um, the, the, the Templeton Award, uh, Templeton, uh, Sir John Templeton Foundation uh, grants a, a, a very big prize, $100,000 for the winner of the best proposal or the most important policy win coming out of the think tank. Hmm. So you have all these all these think tanks that want you know that's kind of like the Oscars for <laughs> for free market think tanks, but it's really cool. And you see people from all over the world. And it's the last one we had in November. We had over seven hundred attendees, and 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 uh, um, and 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 you get to form what uh, what uh, Atlas likes to call celebrate. You know, a great spirit of camaraderie. And you may not know many of these people, but you do know that you have one thing in common: is <laughs> that engaged in supporting the freedom movement uh, throughout the world. And you get to learn a lot from them. So what did Avocada Institute in Sri Lanka do well that did not that was not done well by Libre Desarrollo in Venezuela or that was not done well or that perhaps we could do better by emulating uh, our our friends in uh, in South Africa or or in Nigeria or now we have the proposal for Paraguay wanting to create a new think tank. Okay, well there's Atlas with a with a startup fund that can help you. Then we're not going to finance all of it, but there, there's a certain part. So I think it's really cool. The coach compete celebrate, which now we want to consolidate with the creation of, uh, of these centers. And how can people reach out to you if they'd like to get in touch with you? Well, we have a website, Atlas network, www.atlasnetwork.org. And everything is there. We have the latest updates, the centers. We have a by month, by annual magazine called freedoms champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we have stories about what each uh, uh, region or, or, or different uh, personalities or different think tanks uh, have done. Uh, we have updates. We have newsletters. Everything there is, uh, is on the website. Uh, if, 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 you, if you click w- uh, on the, uh, if you could click in the rubric of, uh, of, uh, of the centers, so you'll find the Center for Asia and the Center for Africa and there's the Center for Latin America and everything that we've done at the level of, uh, of the Center for Latin America. So that that's the easiest way. And otherwise, I can call IPI. You can give my uh, my what's up. Very good. Well, thank you, Roberto, for joining us. And I just I, I wish you all success in what you're doing there with Atlas Network, especially in Latin America, yeah. because it needs it needs your message. Well, if you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.